the World Nomads podcast bonus episode. Hear amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories and experience of world travel. Welcome back to another episode of the World Nomads podcast hosted by me, Kim and you. I'm Phil. At the last time I checked. <laughs> if this is the first time you've tuned in, thank you. We hope you enjoy the episode featuring an amazing nomad. Now that's someone who's demonstrated discovery, connection, transformation, fear and love through travel. In this episode, we meet Angie Davis. She's a photographer, filmmaker and journalist and she sold everything to travel around the world with a young family and barely a possession. Yes, I did. Um, I left a toxic marriage about four years ago and I was sort of struggling with trying to be a creative filmmaker, journalist and having two kids, a mountain of debt and a house to run. So... Uh, I decided that seeing as at the time I was making films about travel and also I was a travel writer, that it would probably be a lot easier if I just took the kids with me on the road and we would figure things out, then I would be happier. They would be happier. I would actually get to spend time with them and I could still do what I do for my work. So I decided uh, to sell everything that I had and we're not talking selling a house. I didn't have a house. I was renting. So I just sold whatever possessions I have, like I'm talking, you know, pots and pans. And when you go through everything in your house that you've collected over, over a period of a few years or longer for other people, you actually have a lot of stuff that you haven't looked at in a long time. And I just decided to get rid of it all, break it down to about uh, three suitcases. I think we had at that time and get one way tickets to Colombia. And that was sort of the beginning. And how old were your kids at this stage? Um, we're going back about three years, so they were roughly five and seven, more and, or less. And how did you feel about taking them to a place like Colombia? <laughs> well, I felt great about it. A lot of other people <laughs> had their own opinions. I had friends in Colombia, so we weren't flying in blind. We had a place we could go and stay, and that's kind of how I travel um, well, I was doing it back then when it was just me and the kids. So we were super excited. It was about five flights to get there. That wasn't the fun part. And it was just, for me, it was just liberating. It was being free. It was having all these new experiences. It was meeting new people. Um, and it was just observing how my kids adapted to this new lifestyle I was giving them. But kids are so adaptable and they make friends all around the world with kids, whether they speak the same language or not. You're basically, you know, hopping from place to place. Yes, yes. So we did the three months in Colombia um, and then we decided, the, my sons are half Japanese, so my ex-husband is Japanese. So we went um, to Japan uh, to go back to an area where I've spent a lot of time in the Japanese Alps in Hakuba for a snow season because I wanted to give the kids the experience of, of learning all about the mountains. They're something that I just absolutely love surfing and snowboarding. So their kids have been exposed to ocean a lot, but they hadn't been exposed to the mountains as much. So we spent three months in the snow staying at a friend's lodge. He has a an outdoor snow school adventure company. So I sort of exchanged some of my skills in media for accommodation and lift passes and the kids went to ski school for three months. Yeah, a great way to do it. So for you, you say in the article that I read on uh, about you that borders are truly an illusion. 
yes, borders are an illusion. They're, they're real in the sense of, um, you have to get visas and you have to go through immigration and they're painful processes. I'm actually back in Adelaide right now awaiting for my French visa and my partners back in France waiting for us. So that's always a problem, but there's differences on either side of the border, particularly, for example, India and Nepal, one side has a lot more poverty than the other. But uh, once you're there, the kids just always remind us that the world is one place and everyone more or less is the same. And the places always look like somewhere else. So I just feel that this whole illusion of my country, your country, Uh, is actually causing a lot of pain and suffering in the world. And when you take your kids around the world like this, you really are showing them that we're actually all connected. And there's no line in the sand that says my country, your country. There might be a little sign that says welcome to Nepal, but you're just literally walking over the same patch of earth that's connected to one country and the other side. I've got some practical questions because I'm hoping lots of other people out there, you know, will listen to this and think about family travel. But one of the ones, of course, is about education of the kids. But before we get to that, oh, you just you just mentioned the thing about hopping from you know, Indian side to the Nepal side on a border and that poverty is much more uh, prevalent on one side. How do your kids handle that? How do they handle some of the you know less pleasant things they'll see? How have they reacted to seeing genuine poverty they have no filter so they tell it how it is um for example they're one of them was born in japan one of them was born in australia and uh, we obviously spend a lot of time in japan and when we went to china they were or even thailand they were like oh it's kind of for example china is like japan only only x y and z like only a little bit dirtier in different places or another place in china like oh wow this is like japan only these people are way richer so they they just pull these in their own words they're seven and nine so how they can decipher what they're feeling just comes out with no filter most of the time um we were flying over Adelaide actually two weeks ago and they were saying that it looked like Africa because Adelaide's obviously in drought right now and we'd just been to Morocco in December so they were like yeah it looked like Africa I was like oh kind of yeah you've been to Africa so you can draw those comparisons but we did go to um, have lunch with this beautiful family in Rajasthan in India we'd met Uh, a man who makes traditional Rajasthani musical instruments in the street. He was selling the instruments he made and he invited us back to his house, which was literally a shanty hut in the desert. And he had a wife who cooked us up her breakfast and a little daughter. And, And this is just like stark poverty. And my kids were just saying to us after we left, like, oh, wow, it must be hard for them when it rains because their house is just full of little holes. It's literally sticks, you know, sticks put together. And they always want to try and help in whatever way they can. And we've stayed in some pretty dire places, especially right up in the Himalayas. We did a nine-day trek in the Himalayas in Nepal. Um, They don't complain about where we are. I think when we were going on the Indian trains they were so excited and comparing them to five-star hotels because they had bunk beds <laughs> that's nice well yeah Phil touched on the education Remy your French partner and yourself you don't sweat over bookwork, do you so it's that your children aren't learning like you would in a classroom in Australia not exactly so I don't sweat over it because 
that just adds stress to all of us. And I want education to be fun for them. I believe in education. I went to university, um, although I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time. I'm doing a master's course now. So education is definitely very strong value in my life. But I just found that there's so much they can learn in a more pure form from adventuring from learning outside of the textbooks. So what we kind of do is when we're actually moving around from place to place, we're really lax. We make them write. We all write, all four of us, a thing called morning pages. We write a in our journals. It can be about the day or it can be about absolutely nothing. It can, it can be a total fictional story. They just have to write something every morning. They often write about their reflections And then when we're more grounded in one place, for example, being in France for three months last year or now being in Adelaide, we're doing uh, the distance education program, which is the Australian curriculum. So we have materials sent to us and then the kids just have to work through those at their own pace and they're all curated around what we're doing. So we can really adapt the material to what they're doing in their lives and on our adventures. So with that, I find that they just really enjoy learning a lot more and they also have less rules around, for example, when they're writing in their journals, they're using words that wouldn't be in a year two site word list. They're trying to spell these words that they're using in their daily vocabulary so they're taking more risks. Um, This travel that you do helps um, fund your lifestyle because you're actually a travel filmmaker. Yeah, sure. So I was the travel editor at Yahoo 7 for a couple of years and then I I left and I went to Peru and I made my first film, Double Barrel, um, which was all about using uh, travel to raise awareness about different social and environmental issues with with a positive side to it rather than just this sort of doom and gloom. We were looking at a coastal town in northern Peru, Lobitos, that has been overrun by the oil industry for 100 years and the government had then discovered that surfing uh, was a form of making money to perhaps replace the oil industry, but they had a very um, sort of shallow view of what uh, tourism looked like for that area. And there was real, they were really at risk of being exploited with big hotels, which would of course ruin the town in terms of building straight on the sand and a lot of environmental factors. So we used the film to create, uh, an awareness campaign around sustainable tourism. And then that film actually helped the locals and local nonprofits raise the funds to get marine studies. And then this is going back three years. So then last year, finally, the seven surf breaks of Libitos were all declared, um, protected by national Peruvian law, which was quite historic for South America. So I made that film. And then while I was making that, uh, I was living next door to two guys in Lennox Head, Dustin Hollick and Rianne Slap. And Dustin had this idea to do a documentary going around Tasmania with no cash, no car, no phone, and only 10 personal items each. He'd had the idea for about 10 years. He'd sort of grown up there. And whilst they were always trying to find surfing Tasmania, they'd ended up doing a whole lap of the state. So we had this idea to make this film series called The Laps. And we went down and we shot the first one, The Lap of Tasmania. So I've just come back from the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, where that film has done really well. But 
it was really after filming the pilot of The Lapse in Tasmania where I'm the director and the producer. So I'm with a small film crew who follows Dustin and Rianne around Tasmania for 14 days while they're trying to survive with nothing. It was really that experience that sort of convinced me that I wanted to live more or less like that myself. But yeah, it just really inspired me to sort of walk my talk more. Does that make sense? And then um, now we're looking at turning that whole thing into a series. We've got an agent in LA who's really interested in trying to sell that out to some of the big travel channels to make a series out of it. So it's pretty exciting times. Not a bad story so far, Phil. We'll pause there on Ange for a few minutes as we meet the boys from the laps who, once they arrived in Tasmania, put their itinerary on social media and they were gifted a bike each. They rode around the state with surfboards strapped to their back through wind, rain, snow and ice. No money on them would not have been easy and possibly a little risky. There was risky moments, but before doing the uh, journey around Tassie, we went and did a, a survival course, had a light fires in wet conditions, you know, like, um, and also just this, the how long you can survive without food as long, as long as you can track down water. If you can find a plastic bag to wrap it around leaves and it draws out the moisture, you know, just a few little things. So we weren't too worried after doing that. So two weeks around Tassie with no cash and you completely relied on the kindness of strangers and what you'd learnt in this particular course. Yeah, that's right. And we, we kind of went in with the idea that um, Rian's an electrician by trade and I, I'm a chippy by trade. So we kind of thought, well, you know, there's a lot of people that need things done around their property or whatever. We, we have that bartering element up our sleeves and, you know, a big idea of the lapse was that this cash economy, you know, it works to a certain degree, but for the overall well-being of the planet, it's not working out that well at the moment. So we thought if we can put a little bit of this barter system into action on our journey, it'll work out really well and it kind of kills a few birds with one stone. And it worked out really well, but people were just so generous that we didn't really do that much work. So have you been su- surprised at the, at the success? I mean, it was chosen to feature at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival in, in the US, you know, for a couple of Aussie boys. And did you expect that kind of attention? Oh, not at all. It was, um, yeah, because really it was just a harebrained idea just to do it and not really to film it or anything like that. Then when we got talking with Angie Moore and Rian over a few nights, we'd have a couple of beers and kept chatting about it and it turned into something a bit bigger where we thought we could film it and maybe shoulder around schools or something and say, hey, look, you don't need a gazillion dollars to be happy. It's just so cool that Angie had such a good production crew with her and um, Shannon and Tim and Jimmy Greer did such an amazing job of filming and audio recording that it created a really good product and I guess people have looked at it and gone, oh, this is kind of funny and and they like seeing silly Aussie guys and um, it's just grown from there. So that's, we didn't expect it, but it's really awesome. Was there anything that happened that didn't make it to the screen? I mean, there was plenty, but every day the production team shot about eight hours of footage. That was 12 days. It's a lot of footage and they chopped it down to like, it goes for 50 minutes. Yeah. There's a lot of editing and a lot of good quality stuff that we, me and Dusto definitely haven't seen. I've only seen the, the final product. 
So I can't really remember. We were very malnourished and fatigued. (laughs) Hard, it was cold, long nights. And one cracker was a guy that I knew. And anyway, he's a delivery driver. We are camped next to a lake near Queenstown in the middle of nowhere. And he's come through at 3 o'clock in the morning. And like Rianne said, we're so malnourished and so tired, especially this particular night. I think we travelled about 70Ks into headwinds that day. And he's just come and started kicking our tent and going, hey, wake up, wake up. You guys are... You guys are camped on the threatened, and he made up some name like Lysiandra, Holy Gandra, <laughs> get out of here. It's a $400 fine on the spot. And we're just going, <laughs> what? What? And then, and then I'm, I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry, can you go away? And he's like, I'm not going away. Get out here and pay your fine. And we go, we've got no money, though. <laughs> he's opened up the tent and he's gone, ha-ha, Dusto, gotcha. Oh, that's great, but we're sleeping on rocks, essentially. It's three in the morning. We really only just got to sleep and now, you know, we might as well stay up because you're not going to fall back to sleep. What did you learn about yourself through that two weeks? Oh, you know, I learned that um, it's, it sounds uh, pretty cliche, but I actually learned I'm a little bit more resilient than I thought because, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty out of shape house dad essentially. You know, I go to work, I look after the kids and I don't look after myself as well as I should and I was really worried going in the trip going, oh, I think my body's just going to fall apart and, and, you know, I need my couch and I need my three solid meals and I need this and that and the internet and Instagram. And I actually came out of the whole experience feeling healthier and better than I went in, which was a really incredible thing, I thought. Yeah, similar to Dustin, but just being engulfed by just the rawness of Tasmania and I love nature. I love being in nature. So I kind of, to be honest, just really wanted to keep going and just live in amongst it. And coming back to reality, I'm like, oh, there's so many things that you, you have to do. And it's, it's I, I just way prefer to be cruising around in amongst nature. Well, Phil, goes to show that no idea is a bad idea. No such thing. (laughs) And you can see why the film has gained so much traction and popularity with those two Aussie lads lighting up the screen. We'll have a link to the laps in show notes. And a chippy for those outside of Australia who don't know what a chippy is? It's a carpenter. Okay, now back to Ange and the work she's doing as a filmmaker in augmented and virtual reality. So a couple of years ago, my film mentor, Taylor Steele, his wife, Sybil, uh, started going heavily sort of into the VR tech space um, for women. And she made a film that went to Morocco and was looking at uh, like a a prenatal ultrasound technology that was helping women in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. So we made a 360 film about that and it premiered at the United Nations um, Social Good Summit. And that was sort of my first real look into VR. I started to get really into it because it is just a teleportation. I don't know if you've done it, but when we're in Bangkok, I, I put Remy in a headset for the first time. And Remy's French, but grew up in Africa. He spent his first 19 years of life in Gabon and Congo. And he was actually able in Google Earth VR to go to where he grew up in the Congo and and Gabon and just be blown away by that feeling of being actually there. So for travel and also for documentary storytelling, I think VR is a powerful medium. It's also fantastic and I use it in education. So an example of that would be that um, 
recently when we were in Montreal, the kids were working on a solar system project and they had a flat piece of paper, you know, a photocopied paper from the textbook that the teachers had sent from Australia of the solar system. And Remy was trying to explain that the solar system was round and the kids couldn't understand that because of course on a piece of paper, it's not looking very round. So I went in my Oculus VR headset and found a solar system experience and the kids did it. It's a 15 minute experience where the kids are in their own little space shuttle and they get launched into space. And then with the narrator who's basically like you know a museum guide uh they travel around the solar system and we got them out of that and they could answer every question they had actually learned because they physically connected with being there so i'm working on an experience right now with an adelaide developer called dash milani and a woman named named joy and joy has been a palliative care nurse her whole life and we've made an experience called parting the veil which takes people who are um, in palliative care in a in a guided journey preparing them for the afterlife and it's a really nice way to connect with what's happening when we die which we all fear and we shouldn't because it's a beautiful thing and it's something we can't avoid and just connects people to the soul and we actually implemented like a sense of travel in that as well because I mean essentially we're traveling through life whether we're out in Africa or India or we're in our own homes and going through our day-to-day we are on this journey so I think VR is a really really powerful medium to tell these stories and um and learn a little bit more about ourselves so there's so many cool things you can do in VR. Like I could list a ton of examples, but for travel, I mean, we were just recently, uh, my partner's a musician and he's not as into VR as me. He just has to come to all the things with me. I, and I'm like, Hey, try this out. But I got him to try, um, being at a blues concert live, like live streaming a blues concert from New Orleans. And we're in the front row. And that is just so super cool. So if you can't actually get out there and travel, or if you just are not sure whether to go to Machu Picchu or to go to the Great Wall of China, you can kind of test it out before you go. And I think that's fantastic. Oh, look, VR certainly takes everything to a completely new level. I've had the pleasure of actually looking at some really well-produced VR travel film. Have you seen any of it? I have briefly, yeah. I was, it was kind of an out-of-body experience. For, well, not an out-of-body, it was weird. Yeah, it does take a little bit of getting used to. Um, and it's also quite funny watching the person wearing the VR set <laughs> yeah. where they're spinning around in the chair and doing stuff. That's, That's it. I think I was fun. in a hot air balloon looking, whoa! Okay. Yes. Now you can get the World Nomads podcast on iTunes or download the Google Podcast app. Subscribe, rate and share. Tell your friends about us. In fact, we've got a survey yes. on the show notes. Yes, it only takes about five minutes, less than that, to fill in. Uh, it's embedded in the show notes. And you can contact us if you've got any questions or suggestions at podcast at worldnomads.com. And next week, we're going to Malta. See ya. Amazing nomads. Be inspired.